Father in the heavens, I appeal to you with my brothers and sisters here. Please, let you, Yahweh, be magnified here. Grant that your son, Yahshua, be magnified. And and grant also that your plan of salvation be glorified. In your son, Yahshua, always. Amen and hallelujah. Well, it looks like if I want to advance these slides, I have to look to ask you to do it. In a recent uh, service, it was, oh, look, the batteries are bobbling around. And, okay. Okay. You know, these batteries look like the kind that came with the unit eight years ago. Forgive me if I'm. I still don't like the looks of those batteries. (laughs) Okay, good. Friends, I'm Brother Michael Bannock from Fulton, Missouri. May every promise of Yahshua be yours. My remarks today is entitled Passover Theology Tune Up. My intention was to throw light on some significant aspects of the Passover and the week of unleavened bread. We're going to take a look at the timing of the first Passover. There's lots of fine things published by YRM about the correct timing of the Passover. I'm just going to throw light on a few details. We're going to look at timing of events in Yahshua's life around the time of his last Passover. And we'll clean up some common controversies and misunderstandings that sometimes emerge. First, let's take a brief look at the timing of the first Passover. Now, friends, am I going to see these slides up there? I'm not asking for that. I just want to know what's normal. No? Oh, okay. I just, you know what it is? I look at, I look at playback recordings of me up here, and I'm always looking down. All right? And, all right. Um, it's turning into a family meeting here. You know, I'll tell you, we're going to have a great feast of tabernacles with these musicians. I've been so lifted by the offerings, beginning with Sister Michelle's compelling poem about uh, Yahweh as a friend, and uh, just continuing through today. Uh, the song that James sang us uh, with us, um, you know, I couldn't help but think about uh, Passover night. Three hours from here, my vehicle broke down. And I don't know what, I, I only have, all I can think of is, Yahweh was there because I just started singing and rejoicing, even though my vehicle wouldn't budge. I just was, and uh, funny because I had so many bad things happen prior to that. Why was I suddenly singing over that? I enjoyed Passover with you on the uh, internet. Uh, Alan gave a terrific sermon. And uh, the only thing, I found suitable emblems across the street. I brought them into the hotel room. The only thing I couldn't do is foot washing. Uh, Sister Brooks suggested I could have called room service, but um, <laughs> I really enjoyed the Passover with you guys. It was just—it just struck me how words of praise and thanksgiving were coming out of my mouth as I sat there with a, a dead vehicle before me. Uh, hallelujah! Wherever I am, I'll praise Him. Take a look at the timing of the first Passover. The departure from Egypt had several individual parts to it. These discrete parts are spread over the time encompassing the slaughter of the lamb 
up to and including the escape of all two million Israelites into a land called Sukkoth. In order to uphold Jewish tradition, plus the attempt to make the master's execution synchronized just right, some people try to make his death line up just right with certain events, some teachers have tried to crowbar a vast story in ancient Egypt into a mere 18 hours or so. I'm being generous there. They, they, I'm saying they, everything happened in their eyes over a dark one dark night and then the previous afternoon. So that's 18 hours. But they figure that the, and they're reckoning the Passover was slaughtered in the afternoon of the 14th. And you know, once that's out of the way, um, you had a whole heap of stuff happen in just 12 hours. Now remember, these things are occurring in the locus of the equinox. So day and night are approximately equal. Let's do some math. Exodus 12:37 says it was 600,000 men. Let's assume there's an equal number of women. This means the adult population is 1.2 million. Now assume that there's an equal number of children. This makes a total population of about 2.4 million. Now some of you, like me and Javon, have been in a modern sports stadium. This modern baseball stadium will house 50,000, 60,000 people. 40 of those. Imagine 40 of those filled with people. That's how many people they had to get out of town. That's an awful lot of people. And it, I am incredulous to think that moving that many people, all that happened in one night between midnight when the, when the Yahweh and the destroyer passed over and sunrise. But there's people who believe that. A mere six hours to move two million people. It boggles the mind. Okay, first of all, let's look at Passover logistics. I'm going to give you some study tips, some things you can take with you after this. There are times when we have to be honest about the sacred deposit before us. This remarkable book. It's not written in a way that we Western English-speaking people can appreciate. We have to get used to the fact that Bible stories are not told in a tidy sequential order. Often there's a break in the story and there's a retrospective remark. Sometimes there's a break in the story and it's looking forward. It's looking future. This continues right up through the New Testament. Punctuation, verse markings, and critical notation in the Hebrew are elusive. There are constructs in the Hebrew that we don't see. We learn about them in in the Hebrew class. But these things are kind of elusive. In Exodus chapter 11, the narrative is interrupted with prophecy and forward-looking statements. I'm going to throw this out there as an example of what you're dealing with. We're going to be coming into Exodus 11, but the story actually begins, this part of the narrative begins in the final verses of Exodus chapter 10. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said unto him, to Moses, Get thee from me. Take heed to thyself, see my face no more, for in that day thou seest my face, thou shalt die. And Moses said, Thou hast spoken well, I will see thy face again no more. This is a conversation in Pharaoh's court between Moses and Pharaoh. Now we go to Exodus 11, and it continues. I know the letters are kind of tiny, but you know you always have your Bibles handy. I use lettering here to highlight the difference in tone, in tense. Exodus 11.1, 1, continuing the dialogue. <clears throat> All of a sudden, Yahweh speaks to Moses right there. 
Exodus 11, verse 1, And Yahweh said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards he will let you go hence, and he shall let you go. He shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. Speak now in the ears of the people, and let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And Yahweh gave the people favor in the eyes and sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So that's a, that's a forward-looking statement thrust in there. Now we go back to verse 4, and we're back to Pharaoh's court. Moses is still standing in front of Pharaoh. And Moses said, Thus saith Yahweh. This is Moses looking Pharaoh in the eye. This is what Yahweh says. About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth on his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of the beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue, against man or beast, that you may know that Yahweh doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel." And all these thy servants shall come down unto me and bow themselves to me, saying, Get thee out and all the people that follow thee. And after that I will go out. And finally, and he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. And then we go back to Yahweh talking to Moses. Now on your screen it's in blue font. And Yahweh said unto Moses, verse 9, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt, and Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. When we read these ancient stories, they're not structured in a neat, tidy way that's convenient for us Western readers. These elements are injected for a reason where they appear. Early in Exodus 11, I think those three verses are injected to help us understand when the Israelites despoiled the Egyptians. That'll be a... There's a full menu of activities around Passover to make an 18-hour exodus in incredible. They have to kill the Passover lamb. This is according to those now who... This list is truth, but I'm saying there are those who want to shoehorn all this into a tiny slice of time. They've got to kill the Passover lamb, roast it. That's not easy. You know about Thanksgiving, huh? Eat of it. Eat it. But, but I, when I, there are times when I've cooked Chinese here, kosher Chinese, and people are tired of waiting, you know? And they come in the kitchen and they say, Brother Mike, is there anything I could do to help you? And what they're saying is, Brother Mike, when are you going to be done? Because they want to hurry it up, you know? You've got to kill that lamb. You've got to roast it. You've got to eat of it. Then at midnight, Yahweh passes over the Israelite homes. Yahweh sends the, the destroyer to all the others. Here's, this next step is significant. Pharaoh and all of Egypt have to figure out what's going on. I have to wonder, who was the first person to find a dead firstborn? Where's the first family in Egypt? News might have spread pretty quick. They didn't have internet they didn't have pagers. They had none of that stuff. So Pharaoh and all of Egypt had to figure out what happened. Now, this is after midnight. You only have now maybe four or five hours before sunrise. A message courier team is dispatched to Moses. 
And then the Egyptians are banging on Israelite doors for them to get out. The Israelites, through that night, received gifts and bribes to get out of Egypt. The Israelites package up their unleavened bread. We have read this explicitly. Then they have to burn the Passover leftovers in the morning. That'll be important later. Then they travel from Goshen to Ramses. I think they went to Ramses because there was a lot of room there. It was a, a treasure city. They worked there. I think there was a lot of room there to get organized. And then they traveled from Ramses to Sukkot. Two million people. All this. They're going to have this happen in such a narrow slice of time. I want to emphasize that burning of the Passover leftovers in the morning. Now you think, there's people who honestly think all this happened in one night. That the Passover lamb was slaughtered in the afternoon of the 14th and that the night of the 15th was the real Passover. And they think that the Israelites escaped Egypt, got all the way to Sukkot, while it's still dark, and because they could not burn Passover leftovers to the morning, they lugged those, those leftovers with them. Come on, you really think that? You think, hey, don't, don't leave that behind. Let's, we'll, we'll burn that when we get to Sukkot. Do you really think that happened? Come on, guys. The timing of the 15th Passover theory uh, really puts everybody under incredible stress, and um, it's just not logistically possible. But there's more, Exodus 12:22, which we heard today. We heard it today. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out the door of his house until the morning. Uh, you, now it's, now it's, the ball game's over. Ball game's, you can't, they're just telling me you can't go out. Now, later in the book of Exodus, there's also a command to not take any of the Passover out of the house. So we have a lot of moving parts, and they, they have to like go into some alternate universe where they they get to Sukkoth before they leave or something, and then you can't go out of the house until morning. What trips up a lot of people, I think, is that um, where the scriptures are clear, Passover's on the 14th. This isn't, every time it mentions the 14th, it's a Passover. But the punctuation, the way the stories are told, the boundaries, and the poor King James guys, I think they did a great job with what they had, but they sometimes put clauses together that belong with a new narrative. And anytime you want, you can sit with me in the uh, dining hall, and I'll show you where these boundaries are in the story where people, well-intentioned translators put things together that should not be touching. Eight verses in the Bible say that Passover is on the 14th. None of them say Passover is on the 15th. Passover, think about that, passing over. It refers to the skipping over of the Israelite homes at midnight. That's what the word Pesach means, the skipping over. That is the main event in the original Passover. Now, we're going to pivot to another topic in a moment. When that passing over was what Yahweh did. It looks like the destroyer traveled with Yahweh, and whenever he paused, the death angel went down and took the firstborn. But if Yahweh passed over a house, the death angel just kept tagging along. Um, anyway, there was some crazy guy out there who from Illinois, he said that uh, 
He said, Yahshua was the death angel. I couldn't believe that. People try so hard to make this. <laughs> In case you've ever heard that, it's a real simple explanation. The destroyer just tagged along. Um, we're going to now talk about Yahshua's Passover. And the timing of the old Passover will be important. I'd like to uh, start my analysis with you. If you join me on this little adventure with the anointing at Bethany, it's a profound event jam-packed with spiritual insights. The event at Bethany serves as a decoder ring for the rest of the story. But each evangel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they underscore different aspects, and it compels us to build a composite narrative to create that three-dimensional view of what happened. One year, I kept unleavened bread with some families in the Oregon coast. We had a lot of time on our hands. In using a computer, this is an early computer, I managed to synchronize the evangels, all the events that happened. You know, you've seen these harmonies of the Bible, the Gospels, and that. I got it all lined up for everything involving the Passover events with Yahshua, including the resurrection. And uh, it wasn't really that hard. Some of the things I'll be showing you here is a sort of an outgrowth of that. I printed it all out, I taped it all up, folded it all up, and I lost it. So someday I have to do it all over again with somebody. Uh, but it's just great to line up these things, and we're going to do some of that here. We're going to look at the um, anointing at Bethany by grabbing sections from Matthew. Mark, Luke, John, we're going to put all this together. I don't know if Luke is going to be in this section. But what happens is the composite allows you then to realize what's going on. I'm kind of happy Yahweh made me do this. I mean, wouldn't this book be boring if every book said exactly the same thing, exactly the same way? We start with Matthew 26, 1 to 7. And it came to pass when Yahshua had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be executed. Okay, now turn the page. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the place of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Yahshua by subtlety and kill him. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now back to Yahshua. Now when Yahshua was bed in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat down to eat. Now we're going to jump to John. Then took Miriam a pound of ointment of spikenard very costly and anointed the feet of Yahshua and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of his disciples, Judah Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. He says, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? By the way, 300 pence is a whole lot of dough. I think it's, it's a, if a penny is a day's wages, this would be almost uh, a year's wages. So Judah says, hey, we should have sold this and given it to the poor. But John clarifies in verse 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. I can't speak for all cultures, but I know in America, the American people are very generous. But every last one of us is really aggravated when we're taken advantage of, aren't we? 
And we surely don't want to give money to charitable causes where more money goes to the staff than to the targets of the charity. Some translations say that Judas helped himself to what was in that bag. I think that the office of treasurer, in any religious organization, I think the office of treasurer should be called the office of Judas, just to keep people's keep people in perspective, like, hey, there's temptation here. There's a lot of money going by. When you read the other evangels, it sounds like the disciples started this controversy. I bring John in because he's the one who prodded them. We're going to go to Matthew and pick up at verse 8, Matthew 26, verse 8. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, to what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Yahshua understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble you the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For you have the poor always, but with me you have not always. For in that she poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, whosoever, Wheresoever this good news shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. Now I'm going to back up. I don't want you to get dizzy. I'm going to go back a couple slides. Look again at the beginning of Matthew 26, verse 1. And it came to pass when Yahshua had finished all these things, he said unto his disciples, that's everybody, men and women both, that's everybody. When it's just the apostles, it will say so. You know after two days is the feast of Passover and the Son of Man is betrayed to be executed. So now you jump ahead to the anointing uh, described in Matthew 26. It looks like this gal Mary is the only one who paid attention. If you think about those incidences, remember they, like Peter would argue with him, oh, no, master, no, they're not going to kill you. No, and Yahshua rebuked him for that. This story unpacks like DNA, and I feel I've only begun to scratch the surface of understanding it. Regarding Mary's uh, gesture, I see it. this to me just obviously means you give Yahshua your very best. Now, we're still in Matthew 26. Yahshua has said that whatever she, what she did will be told as a memorial to her. There's only about four or five memorials in the whole Bible. Passover's a memorial. Sabbath's a memorial. Yahweh's name is a memorial. The, the, the prayers and Alms of Cornelius are a memorial. Yahshua takes this humble woman, this brave woman, and catapults her action to the level of a memorial. Now look at what the last verse says there. Then one of the twelve called Judah Iscariot went unto the chief priests. This guy is so ticked. He is so mad. He's been openly humiliated. He stirred up the disciples to complain about this, and now he's been openly humiliated. Let's talk a little about Judas. We don't want to give him a whole lot of airtime, But um, when you have time, you go back and read John's account of the loaves and fishes. All the evangels cover the loaves and fishes. Most of them do two events. If you do the math, you find out when they had fewer loaves and fish, they had more leftovers. It's amazing when you do the math. But um, John covers only one of those incidences, and then he adds more. That particular crowd chased him around. They chased Yahshua around. They were looking for a free meal. Then when Yahshua turned to them, he says, don't, don't go looking for you know, uh, natural food. Look for the spiritual food. If you read that entire chapter, 
you find that's when Yahshua realized that Judas was going to betray him. Have you ever said something to somebody to your left, hoping that somebody to your right would hear it? Haven't you ever done that? You have a bunch of people in the room. You're talking to one person, but you're hoping somebody else over yonder hears it because it'll do them some good. You're like doing them a favor by not telling them directly. When Yahshua talks about seeking the bread from heaven, and he's telling this, this crowd following him for the free meal, he knows Judas is standing there, hearing all this. Judas was very materialistic. Let me press on. So now I'm going to continue with Mark's version, 14, verse 10. And Judah Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. I underscore that. He sought how he might conveniently betray him. And before the day of unleavened bread, when they were accustomed, wont, accustomed to kill the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples and said unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever, wheresoever he shall go in, say you to the good man of the house, The teacher saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. I want to underscore <clears throat> that Yahshua told them where to find the upper chamber using a miracle. I'm sure many of you have read by now that men carrying pitchers of water was extremely rare. This is where the Hebrew roots approach to the Bible uh, rings the bell. Men don't go running around carrying pitchers of water. That's woman's work. Yahshua used a miracle to get them there. Why couldn't he just say, you go to the end of Main Street, there's a blue house at the end, go upstairs. Why didn't he say that? Why didn't he give them real directions? Why did he use a miracle? Because of what you have in the verse above. Judas is seeking how he can conveniently betray Yahshua. And when the disciples say, where are we going to keep the Passover? Judas is listening. Where are they going to do it? Where are they going to have this? Because if he can get a fix on where the Passover is, he can get Yahshua arrested early. It required a miracle to get the Passover site identified. If the location was disclosed explicitly, Judas could have heard it and betrayed the master before the Passover was fulfilled. This should draw, cause us to look closer at this Passover with his, with his men. Uh, you know, it's funny because now that I know how important the cup and the bread are, I'm, um, I'm amazed that people would try to diminish that Passover. Oh, it was a Seder. Uh, it was a warm-up. You know, it was a tradition. No, it was a Passover. Luke 22, verse 15, he says, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, as far as the timing, it is obvious that the Jews were eating the Passover on a different calendar. In John 18, verse 28, we get a, we get a snapshot of this. Then led they Yahshua from Caiaphas into the hall of judgment, and it was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So it's obvious they're going to keep the Passover a day later, 
than Yahshua and his disciples. Now at the outset of the 14th, after sundown, the Passover was prepared and then eaten by Yahshua and his, his men. In this case, it was just the 12. Now on the afternoon of the 14th, that'd be the next daylight period, the Jews were very busy bringing their lambs to the temple for slaughter because that's how the, tr- the tradition developed. The families would go bring their lambs to the temple to be slaughtered by the priests. And this was going on all afternoon because in their view, between the evenings meant sometime between high noon and sundown. Now, I don't think they did this to be deceitful. I think they were trying to reconcile some... Uh, traditions, some passages that may not be clear to them. I don't think they did that to be deceitful. But they were slaughtering all those lambs at the wrong time. I don't know how you can call the afternoon an evening. I don't see that. I see two evenings as uh, the drop of the sun below the horizon. You can see it when that glint of golden sunlight finally disappears. There's a sense of darkening there that's unmistakable. And then the second darkening when it's really dark. You know, it's really dark. I heard of an Arab tradition that they, they determine that point when you cannot tell the difference between a white thread and a black thread. I've heard other brethren talk about discerning the total darkness with starlight. Anyway, there's two darkenings there, and they're very obvious. I don't see how you can say between the evenings is the afternoon, but that's what they were doing. Attempts to synchronize Yahshua's execution with the slaughtering of Jewish Passover have fallen short. And this is what's got a lot of people tripped up. They say, well, he's the Passover. Uh, He's got to die when one of those lambs over there gets slaughtered. They try real hard to line that up. And sometimes they get kind of creative. Was Yahshua's execution supposed to synchronize with the death of a Passover lamb. No, no. And I'll try to unwind that for you. In fact, the Passover was never described as taking away sin. I've never seen that anywhere. Another fact, sin offerings. Now, most of them are found in Leviticus 4. Sin offerings can take place at any time. Sin offerings are going... In Leviticus 4, if you take time to read it, people go there with an offering for sin when they realize they sinned. Here's another thing. Yahshua fulfilled the atonement sacrifice. Well, that's in the seventh month. He wasn't killed in the seventh month. With so many types of sin sacrifice to fulfill, it's rather important that Yahshua's execution occur in synchronization with no sacrifice in particular. He's got to fulfill all these, these sin offerings. I don't, I don't think it's a good idea to have that, his death line up with anything in particular. But some will. Many have tried to synchronize Yahshua's execution with the slaughtering of the Passover lamb. Garner Ted Armstrong, maybe some of you have heard of him. <laughs> in, in one of his booklets, uh, he claimed that the spear that was thrust into Yahshua's side was done at the moment the Passover lamb was slain at the temple. Um, Yahshua was already dead when that happened. You see, people are trying so hard to get everything to line up. They, they got, all this stuff has got to line up just right. Countless lambs were slaughtered on the wrong day. <coughs> Question, of all those lambs that were slaughtered up there at the temple, 
Which one would you choose to identify as the exact prototype? You don't have to. There's a much better way to sort this whole thing out. I'm hoping some of you who have agonized over this, I know that some of you have not given it any thought, and, and that's cool. I'm happy for you. But there's some who have agonized over this. I'll give you a way of sorting this out and making everything line up in a way you'll never forget. And it's with a lively sense of joy that I get to share this with you. Yahweh's action of passing over was applied to the slaughter and the eating both. The lamb was slaughtered, it's called the, the Passover, and the eating is called the Passover. But to get the proper prophetic synchronization of events in Yahshua's time, you must stop thinking in terms of the slaughter. But that, that's the cause of the confusion. The proper synchronization is in the time of the eating. When you think in terms of the time of the eating of the Passover, bang, everything lines up, everything makes sense, Every prophecy is fulfilled. Every type is fulfilled. I'm now going to read some passages about taking the memorial and see if you can see with me why the taking of the memorial in Yahshua's time, that last Passover, that is the real deal. Yeah, let me get kind of expressive here. That's where the action is. That's the center of gravity. Neon signs, orange, yellow, and red, blinking, sirens going off. For the night that he took the cup and the bread with his apostles, everything emanates from that, everything radiates from that. Everything derives from that. Everything springs from that. That's the real thing. And now so many brethren, they mean well. They, they look at that ancient Passover, they say, yeah, we've got to fill that. We've got to fulfill that. We've got to make all that. We've got to check off all the boxes. The real thing is Yahshua sitting with his disciples, taking the cup and the bread. Now, really, I'm not putting you on. Everything springs forth from that. That's the night the whole world was waiting for. Matthew 26, 26, as they were eating, Yahshua took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. That's what the Passover was pointing to. Mark's version, 14.22. And as they did eat, Yahshua took bread and blessed and broke it and gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. You can't get around this. Now, Luke does it a little differently. There are times when I've had to officiate a Passover when I was far away and there was people there who wanted to do a Passover. And I brought to their attention that Luke starts with the cup, but they don't drink it. What he does is, I'll explain before I read, he starts with his cup and he divides it among them. Then he, then he, then he transitions to the bread and then they drink the cup. It's a detail that Luke provides that others didn't mention. Luke twenty two fifteen, and he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of Elohim. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. You notice they don't drink it. <clears throat> for I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of Elohim shall come. 
And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament. I neglected to fix that. The Greek word means covenant. This, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, this event is very encompassing. And on a, on a warm afternoon at Tabernacles, you might see brethren around a picnic table discussing what was the biggest event in the plan of salvation. What was it? Was it the creation of man? Was it Yahshua's birth? Some Christians get really wound up over that. Was it the Passover? Was it the time he was executed? How about his resurrection? Was that the biggest event? I believe it's the taking of the emblems because it includes his execution. Here we go again. My uh, brother Lucas, my water boy. <clears throat> You're so generous, Lucas. Whosoever shall give one of my disciples a cup of cold water in my name will never never lose his reward. Yahshua's supper includes his execution, doesn't it? So, because he's looking ahead. This thing looks to the past, it looks to the future. Remember, he says, do this and remember of me. Well, what were they doing? They were doing a Passover. So, and the Passover is a memorial of... um, the Exodus. So when you commemorate the Exodus, commemorate it in, in my name, in memory of me. He brings the past to the present, and he's looking to the future. He talks about not taking it again till he comes back. Would the second coming be the most important event in the plan of salvation? Well, he mentions that here. The, the last Passover, I'm not comfortable calling it the Last Supper anymore. But the last Passover, because I don't think Last Supper is in the Bible anywhere. Is it? Elder Allen just uh, confirmed that. So, but the last Passover incorporates everything. Everything's in there. Now I can see why the Passover had such urgency. John does not describe the events of the cup and the bread, but he explains the theology of it in John chapter 6. Starting with verse 48, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat men in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which come, cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Yahshua said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Now, of course, this was very hard for them to understand. So I'm going to skip ahead. That's all I'm going to read from there, except I'm going to skip ahead and look at John 6, 63. He says, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. You hear these hard sayings of Yahshua. They are spirit. They're meant to be interpreted spiritually. And um, 
Those who knew he was onto something stuck around. Many left him because, actually a lot of people left him because of this hard saying. The emphasis should be on taking of the memorial. Yahshua's recrafting of the Passover memorial is the real deal. All theology about Passover must flow from that event. The memorial speaks of the past and the future all in one setting. In the old books, the second month Passover was allowed, showing its urgency. Both old and new Passover are described as absolutely mandatory. See, that's where the emphasis should be. We renew our covenant with him every year, and thus our covenant with each other. This is something um, I don't get to mention too often. We're all in covenant with Yahweh. That means we're in covenant with each other. Remember the terms of the covenant. His friends are our friends. His enemies are our enemies. We're going to transition now to another um, topic relating to this matter of Yahshua fulfilling the Messianic office. Many people have published this already, um, but there's one little detail I'm going to add. The principle of the scepter departing from Judah. We're going to read a prophecy from the lips of Jacob. He's pronouncing a prophecy over Judah. In Genesis 49.10, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Binding his foal unto the vine, and his donkey's colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. By the way, there's two donkeys mentioned there. And if you read, uh, at least one of the evangelists described his entry into Jerusalem as you, there were two donkeys involved, believe it or not. But um, there's a lot of messianic stuff here. In one of the epistles, Yahshua is called an apostle of our faith. Well, the word he in Hebrew for that is shaliach, something like that, shaliach. And that word is related to Shiloh. Everybody knew this was a messianic prophecy. What does this mean? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. The word lawgiver there has nothing to do with Torah. If you look up the Hebrew word for lawgiver, it means someone who issues decrees, just makes decrees. The scepter was interpreted by the sages of Judaism as the ability to rule themselves, particularly to issue decrees such as capital punishment. Now, this is published by a lot of people, and I'm just... I found the first one to talk about that here. Well, hallelujah, I'm glad it's getting out there. They're expecting the Messiah to come when they lose their sovereignty. Now, there's a reference here on the screen. I put it in blue. For the sake of those who only get the audio outreach, I'm going to read it. It's www.blueletterbible.org forward slash com, spelled C-O-M-M, slash Eastman underscore Mark slash Messiah, slash SFM, as in Sammy, Frankie, Michael, underscore 06.cfm. Now, I know on the audio outreach, they can play it back, so I'm not going to repeat all that. (laughs) But um, this is one of many resources that have documented this. So I'm just giving that as one. If you bang on the Internet and say Shiloh, Messiah, things like that, scepter departing Judah, so this, 
this particular reference did a nice job of uh, bringing in a lot. But in the in the, it states there a little more than 40 years before the destruction of the temple, which would be Yahshua's ministry, the power of pronouncing capital sentences was taken away from the Jews. In Antiquities 20 and 9, Josephus points out that the Sanhedrin had no authority over capital cases. John 18.31, when Yahshua was arraigned, they said, then said Pilate unto them, Take you him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said to him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. That's a biblical verification of what I'm telling you. The Jews had lost the ability to declare capital punishment. When the members of the Sanhedrin found themselves, I'm continuing from that same reference, when the members of the Sanhedrin found themselves deprived of their right over life and death, a general consternation took possession of them. They covered their heads with ashes and their bodies with sackcloth, exclaiming, Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, and Messiah has not come. Little did they know he was already walking the streets. Now, this, the first time I read this was in Josh McDowell's book, his, his, his classic, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. The very first one. But I'm glad to know this is like getting out there as common knowledge amongst Christians and Messianics. Many have caught this fact that the final vestige of Jewish sovereignty was lost right at Yahshua's time. You'd think it would enter their mind, oh, we've lost the scepter. We can't even decide who lives and dies. Maybe the Messiah is walking around here somewhere. No, never entered their mind. Nope. But more than this, everything I've told you thus far you can find in multiple sources. But there was one instance in time in which they momentarily regained their sovereignty. And I don't want to draw attention. There was a moment of time, this aperture of opportunity where they could decide uh, who lives, who dies, lawfully. Lawfully. We know there were stonings here and there. We know that. But lawfully. By the way, they got in a whole lot of trouble for stoning James years later. Um... We're going to look at uh, Matthew's account. We're going to look at Matthew 27, verse 19. When he, Pilate, was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. According to the law of Rome, the Sanhedrin had to go to Pilate and say, Can we kill this guy? Or you kill him. <laughs> That's right, you kill him. And um, look how Yahweh put a knife to Pilate's throat through his wife. This is a just man. Don't have anything to do with him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy him. They had this tradition, you know, of uh, letting one criminal go around Passover. The governor answered and said unto them, Whither of the two will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Yahshua, which is called Messiah? They say unto him, Let him be executed. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be executed. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made, He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. See you to it. 
Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. By the way, I, I did the DNA test and years ago, and I found I was related to a colony of Jews in Morocco. All right? But, you know, I had to formally go to Yahweh and say, listen, just in case I'm, I'm, I'm an, these people are my ancestors, would you please, Father, make sure that any lingering curses be lifted? If you think you've got Jewish blood in your veins, you ought to go pray about that. Say, Father, would you make sure that curse doesn't apply to me? I just think that's a good idea. But when Pilate did this, he was saying, I'm giving the scepter back to you for this case. I'm going to let you guys have the scepter. I'm out of this. This, 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 is your, this is your business. I'm out of this. For one moment, for one slice of time, the scepter was restored to them. They decided who received capital punishment. By the way, they also decreed who would live. Barabbas was a murderer. So you had a double witness there. Not only deciding who dies, but also deciding who lives. After that, the scepter was departed for good. Yahshua was dead before the day was out. Jacob's ancient prophecy was fulfilled in one day. Now, I had some, uh, two additional things, depending on time permitting. And uh, I don't know, how long have I been up here? I don't suppose you know this because your back is always to that. That timer does, is not right. <laughs> it's, uh, I, okay, maybe, maybe you fixed it. I don't know, but well, it's, um, it looks like we have some time for a couple things. And I don't want to wear you out, but the idea is to cast light on things and try to sweeten them up so we have a, a deeper appreciation of what's been given to us. When people bring up some of these topics, they're really trying to find the truth, and I don't want to find fault with them. I would only find fault with them if they kept pushing it. But shortly after I got into the faith, some Bereans discovered that the word for bread in Matthew's account, Matthew 26, when Yahshua took the bread, that it was the Greek word artos. And you look up Strong's Concordance, it says it's bread as raised or a loaf. And so it their brother who looked at that and says, oh my goodness, Yahshua used leavened bread for the, for the Passover. And this also fed into this theory that Yahshua didn't keep a Passover. He kept a, a kind of a Seder thing or a traditional meal. And this created quite a fuss yeah, for a while until some people did some digging. So I'm going to solve this one for you in case it comes up again. Because I, well, you can ask the, those of us who have been in the faith for a while, some of these Silly controversies, they sort of make the rounds, uh, you know, every decade or so. What about that bread? The definition in Strong's Concordance suggests the bread was leavened, using the word raised. Much needless controversy arose over this. Note this event, however, shortly after the resurrection. When Yahshua was talking with the disciples, he's walking with them. They don't know it's him. And it came to pass, as he sat to eat with them, he took bread, Greek word artos, and blessed it and break and gave it to them. Well, with this, we know the Greek word artos can include unleavened bread. It can include that. Because there's, this is during the week of unleavened bread. They're not going to have leavened bread laying around. So this happened right after the resurrection. And so now we know artos points to both leavened and unleavened bread. 
But there's something more at play here. Get your hands on one of the classical Greek dictionaries like Scott and Liddell's Greek lexicon. This event happened, um, well, I already mentioned that, uh, during Unleavened Bread. But more importantly, the, the classical Greek dictionary states that artos is made from wheat. Artos, a cake or loaf of wheat bread. Now, the word for barley bread is a different word in Greek. And now you know why, when you go to the store and you buy matzos for Passover, it always says, wheat matzos. They're always made of wheat. Now, why would you want the matzos made of wheat? It's not a law. I'm not creating a doctrine here. But why would a good example be wheat? Because in Israel, you want to avoid all doubt that the bread you're eating might have new barley in it. Remember, you can't touch the new barley until the wave sheaf offering. So the way to remove all doubt is to make your matzos out of wheat. So if this issue ever comes up, at least you're equipped to handle it. Here's another one. Dawning to the start of the week. In one of the resurrection accounts, Matthew 28, verse 1, it says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn to the first day of the week, came Miriam Magdalene and the other Miriam to see the sepulcher. I, maybe I'm alone in this. How many people have read this and paused when you saw the word dawn at the end of the Sabbath? Has anybody else ever saw that word dawn in there and said, what do you mean dawn at the end of the Sabbath? Am I the first guy to notice that? Okay. I guess I am. I, oh, I see. Brother, brother, brother Bob has raised his hands. Okay. My scholar brother over there. Okay. But you know, our Christian friends jump on that and they think that this is always oh, another sunrise thing. The Greek word for dawn there is uh, Strong's number 2020, epiphosko. Epiphosko. Light upon. Epi means upon. Like epidermis is the skin upon, that's the outer layer of skin, epidermis. Epiphosko means light upon. And you look at Strong's Concordance and it says it comes from Greek number 2017. It means to grow light, begin to dawn. It's been translated as draw on. So here we go again. Strong's Concordance is a nice starting point, but it falls flat when accuracy and precision are needed. I'm going to take you, please, to Luke 23. We're going to look at an event there that happened right after Yahshua's death. We're talking about this fellow, um, uh, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. In Luke 25, verse, pardon, Luke 23, verse 52, this man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Yahshua. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn with stone, wherein never man was before laid. Verse 54, And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. The, word drew, the words drew on in your translation is again the Greek word epiphosko. Well, it's obvious from this context that this is late in the day, and that the sundown is getting close, Right? Maybe it was after sundown. Hmm? Well, here's how to resolve this. Epiphosco can mean dawn, but it is best interpreted as twilight, which can occur both in the morning and the evening. And that's why you'll see the word epiphosco sometimes refer to a sunrise morning and sometimes refer to sundown. So when you see Mary Magdalene run into the sepulcher after Sabbath, 
and it says dawn, the Greek word actually means twilight, where it's kind of light, kind of dark. If it's in the late in the day, it's going to be somewhere between sundown and dark. If it's, if, the, if it's early in the morning, it's going to be somewhere between the first glint of light and the full sunrise. I'm going to summarize these things for you. The Passover is always called for on the 14th, nowhere on the 15th. Issues of punctuation and storyline boundaries will hinder clarity in your English translations. A careful consideration of all that happened on the 14th and 15th leads one to keep Passover night separate from the first day of unleavened bread. Let me clarify what happened there. I'll, I'll try to be brief. See, now, that, that timer, it said five minutes, then it went to 35. Okay. Okay. I feel like a little boy who's seeing monsters under his bed. <laughs> Nobody sees them. Oh, that. Oh, okay, thank you. Okay. They didn't leave their homes until sunrise on the, on the 14th. Then the 14th, they did all that walking. First to Ramsey's, get organized, and did all that walking. And their procession continued into the night, two million people. And it was the night that they crossed whatever boundary they had there on the east side of Egypt. They crossed that boundary into Sukkot. We're not sure where these places were, but it was far enough of way to say we're out of there. We're free. So the 15th was a great celebration of their release, and the 14th was a memorial. Attempts to synchronize Yahshua's death with a particular lamb on the afternoon of the 14th is futile. It really is. It, 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 it's not getting you anywhere. The correct synchronization is to lock in the time of the eating. When we're all here, eating the emblems, washing each other's feet. We're celebrating a new covenant. We're, you know, the, it's, it's the arrival we've been waiting for. The entirety of the prophetic plan surrounding Passover revolves around the establishment of the new and everlasting covenant in the upper chamber. Yahshua's Passover was shrewdly protected with a miracle. By the way, this, this is harder to show from the Bible, but I think when Judas got the, got the garrison... Remember, Yahshua told them, whatever you're going to do, do quickly. In other words, he was saying, hurry back. And I think Yahshua uh, got out of there with, the, with his men, and Judas went first to the upper chamber. Because that's the last place he saw him. So uh, I would love to have been there with the garrison and the, the assistant of the high priest grabbing him like you see in those hoodlum movies you know, from Chicago. Hey, we gave you 30 pieces of silver. Where is he? You think about it, the last place they saw, he saw Yahshua was the upper chamber. So it's only natural he'd go there first. Well, anyway, they did finally catch up with him in the garden. Um, but Yahshua had to protect that night with a miracle to throw Judas off the, off the path. With so many types of sin sacrifice, it is rather important that Yahshua's execution occur in sync with no sacrifice in particular. When Pilate washed his hands, the scepter was momentarily returned to Judah for the purpose of indicting Yahshua and for releasing Barabbas. On the very day they lawfully exercised the scepter for the last time, they squandered it, killing an innocent man and releasing a murderer. The Passover bread was made of wheat, a proper understanding of the word artos, and that's why we use wheat matzos. And this avoids doubt about new barley getting in there. 
Finally, the word for dawn in Matthew 28, 1 actually means twilight, just as it did in Luke 23. Well, you've all, once again, you've all been very patient with me. I appreciate your attentiveness. Um, we're having a great feast so far. I heard we have a baptism coming up. I celebrate making a new friend yesterday, having picked up the candidate from St. Louis. I'm a really cool guy. Hallelujah.